Support for Talking Art comes from Quad City Bank and Trust, providing consumer and commercial banking as well as trust and asset management. For more information, visit qcbt.bank or stop by one of QCBT's five locations. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Lawrence Hobgood, a jazz pianist, composer, arranger, producer, Yamaha artist, and Grammy winner, about his upcoming performance at the Sound Conservatory in Rock Island on Sunday, May 28th. Welcome, Lawrence. Uh, thank you very much, Carolyn. It's great to be here. We are so excited to have you back in town, and you've performed here before, in large part due to your, your relationship with Nate Lawrence, who's the founder of Polyrhythms. Who will you be performing with on Sunday? Ah, so I have uh, two of the best musicians in New York City. I'm lucky to have them in my trio. The drummer's named Jared Schoenig. Uh, Jared is uh, from an arts family on the West Coast. Her parents are music educators, and as such, he is that rarest of drummers. He plays piano very well uh, hmm. uh, and can even improvise and has a knowledge of uh, theory, particularly harmonically driven theory, that is very, very rare for drummers to have even a small part of what he has. Uh, the bass player is a wonderful musician named Matthew Clossey. Uh Matthew's an Aussie, uh, but he's been living in New York for over 20 years now. So he's, he's just an extraordinary bassist in terms of um, very deep technique uh incredible imagination he's just he's amazing yeah well many of your songs seem to seem to begin with a strong bass element and uh we'll talk about those some of those songs in a minute in 2016 you released a record entitled honor thy fathers w what was your inspiration for this work well the truth is i was ready to make a statement on my own and it was kind of a turning point for me and uh, I realized that so much of where I found myself was the result of the many profound influences that I had uh, been fortunate enough to have, uh, many of them down at U of I in Champaign-Urbana. And so, so these are metaphorical fathers that you've had in the well, jazz Well, no, there's, 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 there's both. I mean, uh, uh, there's more, more personal ones, including the opening track on that record was written from my own father. So that's not very metaphorical at all. Um, uh, one of the pieces, Triptych, was uh, composed uh, as a homage to my compositional mentor, who was a professor on the composition faculty at U of I. His name was Salvatore Martirano. Uh, and he was my my mentor as a composer. Uh, other, other pieces on the record are dedicated to people that I, in a couple of instances, like Wayne Shorter, I've had the pleasure of meeting them. I never really got to work with them. Uh, uh, it was just really important for me to, to do that, to pay that uh, that homage to these people that have had such an influence on where I found myself at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, let's listen to a portion of your song, Triptych.
you mentioned that you wrote this in honor of of a, a someone that you trained with at the University of Illinois. What what emotions or thoughts were you trying to convey with this composition? Well, uh, Sal had uh, sort of three stages. I mean, you know, he had many more than that. But I viewed him as having three sides, um, and that was the 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 family man, the composing genius, and uh, the the inventor technician. He actually invented one of the first synthesizers, hmm. um, which was called the Salmar construction after his name. Um, and then the other thing is that, that uh, to say that with Sal, um, one of the biggest sort of big picture lessons that I learned from him was what I, what, what I call, what we used to call, what he also would refer to as the left turn, meaning taking your, whether it's a composition or an improvisation, but going in an unexpected direction, uh, but, but still making it work. And that was something that he was a master at. Um, so that was something that I sort of tried to build into this piece a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, that it's aptly titled, and I love the fact that you've identified these three separate portions of his life. And, you know, most of us are really multifactorial, but the triptych analogy is so apt because the the beginning the first and third portions at least when i heard it was um they mirror one another there's a little bit of a discordancy in it and then the mm-hmm. middle portion your like virtuosic performance on the piano really shines through there um it's it's a it's a really lovely piece Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also want to play a bit from another song in that same record, which is Honor Thy Fathers, which is the well-known standard, Give Me This Simple Life. We'll listen to a short portion where the tune will be recognizable here. And a short time later, you really get to showcase your improvisational mastery. When you listen to a classic standard like like this, give me the simple life, are you simultaneously hearing something different in your head? I was I was wondering about that. Like, h- how do you explain the art of improvisation to someone who isn't steeped in it? Well, okay, the, there's a much much less of a distinction between those two things in my mind than the way that most people conceive of them, uh, but. Uh, writing in a compositional way, which means that you're actually documenting some definitive uh, notation that is going to be played uh, ostensibly note for note. But the whole idea around it is that it will facilitate improvisation at some point in the, usually kind of in the middle of a piece. Um, it's, it's, It's a little, 
it's almost a little embarrassing to say I'm, I'm either blessed or cursed, depending on how you choose to view it with, uh, I, I don't really have writer's block. Um, so to get back to the question that you asked, when I hear any piece of music, my, my mind will automatically just start going to all sorts of different things that you could do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, that's what I'm interested in because, um, you know, for I think the majority of us, myself included, when I hear something, I hear specifically what I'm listening to and I'm not creating or extending beyond that. So you really start imagining a whole new set of notes. A whole different if, if, yeah, I mean, you know, I can kind of turn it off and turn it on. Uh, I just drove back from Boston yesterday. I was in a recording session this weekend, and I was, by choice, yesterday, most of the time, I was listening to classic vinyl, you know, um, rock and roll. I, I'm 63 years old. I, I grew up listening to that kind of music. And when I listen to that music, I mostly just want to enjoy all these sounds that I don't really hear that often that are so familiar um, but if I want to turn on the spigot, so to speak, and start thinking about, uh, different ways to render something, um, uh, and, and I'll just, uh, to get back to the case in point, I was going to share with you because you asked about this piece. Uh, one of the reasons I knew I had to do, give me the simple life, uh, was because it was the first track on the first jazz album I ever owned. Mm. Uh, which was an Oscar Peterson solo piano record called Tracks. Great record. Uh, and it's the opening cut. And so when I thought about how I wanted to do it, um, one of the first things that just jumped out at me, it's obvious, is is that they're no longer, I think we can all agree, uh, no longer any such thing as a simple life. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there may be some Luddites living out in the desert someplace that have something close to that, but uh, life's just gotten really, really complicated. And so that led to the sort of the displaced melody over juxtaposed over that repeating baseline uh, that sort of to me conveys the idea that there can be a unified thread through what you're experiencing in life, but it's not, it's nothing, but there's nothing uh, simple about it. Um, so that was the idea there. One of the other main, I mean, it's no secret. I've, I've, I've done a lot of writing for singers and that often means recasting lyrics. So one of the main techniques that I've developed over the years, which I'll just say was born from admittedly not being that good with lyrics i do not have the gift of a of a good singing voice and because of the way that sounds affect my 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 brain when i uh when i hear a piece whether it's a a, a, an aria from an opera or if it's a pop song or if it's you know uh, joe williams or somebody singing a jazz tune i just i just don't notice the lyrics as much because my ears just lock onto the sounds. So when I started working with singers, I was like, Hmm, that's, that's a little, that could be a little bit of an impediment. Uh, I think lyrics are really important. Uh, and, and it, it, it took me a while to realize why it was that I had never processed them, uh, the same as many people do. Um, and so 
I basically turned a, a liability into an asset by getting into the habit of printing out a song's lyrics and reading it like poetry or prose. And lo and behold, started discovering a lot of the time that if you just read the lyrics to a song, uh, very frequently there, there could be at least another main interpretation. So give me the simple life again to get back to that. So that was the first song, the first track on an album. Yeah, and so yeah. you included that under the category of fathers and, um, you know, well, Oscar Peterson. Yes. You know, yes. Yeah. Was a, was a father. And I understand Keith Jarrett was a huge inspiration of yours as well. Absolutely. Mm. The photograph from your album uh, is Honor Thy Fathers is, is beautiful. It's a black and white photo. I'm assuming you're the small baby in the center. Uh, I am. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you know, you're the only one that's looking directly out at the camera, which... I know. Isn't that weird? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I'm assuming your father is holding you and probably a grandfather that's, off to the yeah, side. That's three mm. generations right there. Yeah. Well, you've been living in New York City for, for a while, I think a decade or so, but, but prior to that, you had a long connection with the city of Chicago, and, and you performed for many years at the iconic jazz venue there, the Green Mill, and um, I'm wondering if you can give us a brief rundown of how you launched yourself into the performance jazz world, because it sounded like like your arrival in, in the Chicago jazz scene was quite precipitous, and it was, but it was preceded by some time in, Champa- in Champaign-Urbana, and you've alluded to that already. Yeah, well, How my dad was out? the my dad was the chairman of the theater program at Illinois. Um, we moved there in the years for me between junior high school and high school. So I went to high school at Urbana, uh, and he took on that role. So I spent quite a bit of time down there, even after I was done with school. Just sort of, uh, I had a lot of work. I was, you know, I was technically local. So I had connections that many of the kids that came from out of town to go to school didn't have. Um, But I knew I wasn't going to stay there. Finally, in 1988, I moved to Chicago. And um, my strategy was threefold. Um, I I wanted to let the many, at that point, many people that I knew, uh, a lot of them because they'd gone to U of I and we played together down in Champaign-Urbana. I would let them know that I was there. And then the second part was to maybe get references from those people for people in the scene up there that I didn't know, but that they would give me the time of day if I said so-and-so told me to call. And then the third part of that was to just go to jam sessions uh, and sit in. And if you had asked me going into it, in what order I thought those three things would bear fruit, I would have, I would have said the order that I just told you naively. <laughs> uh, jam sessions uh, being last. Then. Ended up being the exact opposite. Uh-huh. It was the jam sessions that really kind of got me out there. And the most uh, important one certainly was the very first Friday I lived there. So I hadn't lived in Chicago for even a week yet. And I went to the Green Mill and the the late night it was the late night band didn't even start until almost two in the morning. That's when the gig started, um, and the, was being led at the time by Barry Winograd, baritone saxophone player, and also local radio personality. Um, and uh, 
so I went up and introduced myself to Barry. I hadn't met him before, but he had heard my name. Uh, and he told me, well, you know, the, the house band, there's always a house group that, that will play a couple up front and then we'll start asking people to come up and sit in and I'll call, I'll call out your name. I said, fine, I'll be here. And then a few minutes later, he came over to me and he explained that it turned out that the guy that was supposed to play piano in the house band, band that night wasn't there. They didn't know where he was. This was before cell phones. <laughs> they just knew that he wasn't there. And so maybe I'd be willing to go up and hit with them from the from the from the top and i was only too happy to do that and by the end of that uh two-hour jam session gig uh, barry came over to me and said so hey would you like to would you like to join this band <laughs> <laughs> which i love you've been in chicago less than a week and now you're part of a band Playing, yeah, in fact, playing in fact, a weekly gig at the Green Mill. At the Green Mill, yeah, I can tell you, I'm I'm I moved in on a Tuesday, and that was Friday. <laughs> that was Friday. So, so thank goodness cool. there weren't cell phones, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness Listen, they would have found the we, other pianist. We might all we might all be better off if there still weren't cell phones. <laughs> well, I know you've ultimately called the finally called the Green Mill your true jazz home, and it's it's such a lovely space for people who haven't been there. It's close by, and uh, you know you became such a fixture there that in 1995 you were actually list you were named a Chicagoan of the Year in the Arts. It's true. Yeah, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, that was that was fun. All that stuff back then was. Was, uh, it was a different time. Yeah, and you went on to really win a you went on to win a Grammy Award in 2010. I did. So many good things, and now that you're in New York City, you're you're teaching at the New School, and I I am wondering what that's been like for you. And I I actually wanted to spend some time talking about the role that education seems to play within the larger jazz world. Um, because it seems to me that education is something that that jazz musicians commit to perhaps more often than, than musicians working in other genres. Do you, do you think that's true? I do. And actually, you know, uh, there's an answer I didn't give you earlier that's one of my favorite ways to sort of paint around this subject, um, and it applies here as well. And that is, if, if there was a contest for the most used adage or idiom or, dare I say, cliché, uh, I'm not sure that music is the universal language would win the competition, but it would be one of the finalists. You can mm -hmm. bet that, right? So everybody knows that saying, but very few people, and, and in fairness, why would they? But just to make the point, very few people stop and really think about what that means. Um, music is a language. And starting in about 600 AD, it became formalized through the devising of music notation, which was hand in hand with the development of our harmonic and contrapuntal system that is what all of the music that we listen to today is still based upon. But the fact of the matter is, jazz is a highly uh, complex pattern-based uh, form of the language of music that it's impossible to thoroughly grasp it uh, as a practitioner of it without being skilled in the notational element of things. Uh, it's how we 
record our ideas. Um, it's, I mean, you know, the list of things that we do with notation is very, very long. So I won't even try to r r rail it off. Um, but uh, what it means, and it's interesting to put this question in the context of what I do at the new school, because the main course that I teach at, at the new school is a required course. For music majors? For jazz majors, mm -hmm. jazz undergraduates. And what's that? Uh, the title of the course is Arranging Fundamentals. Um, but what that actually means is, uh, and here I'm saying uh, as if the school is saying this to the student, well, you've had four semesters of theory. You've had, I can't remember, either a semester or a year of learning notation software. Uh, and so now, in order, if you want to get a degree from this place, you're going to have to show us that you can take all that information and actually do something with it in the notational environment. Uh, and so the, my, my classes are capped at 12 students and they almost always have 12 students because uh, you know, they have to take the class to graduate. And on average, over half of them would really prefer not to be there. <laughs> uh, you, so, you could say that might extend to other required courses too, but, um, but I can't, um, I, I mean, like you'd be such a, you know, a perfect person to teach arranging to because you've done so much of that. Um, not just, not just piano compositions, but also, um, arrangements for voice. Arrangements for voice, arrangements for big band. Last year I wrote a symphony. <laughs> ah. So to me, the art of arranging is about trying to create uh, uh, I know I keep using the word context, create a situation where you've got a very customized version of a song that directs your improvisation to happen in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Well, and your, your trio members, you know, the three of you together really have to function as one organism. So, so they must feel that same way and, and, uh, and, for it to be perfected really the way it is. I mean, it's it's really incredible to see it come together. That's one thing I love about jazz is it's like, you know, you're, you're three or perhaps four different different individuals, but yet you, you can't tell where one person ends and the other begins. It's all part of this, yeah. this, 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 this whole different organism or beast. Well, it's I'll, wonderful. I'll tell, you a little, I'll tell you a little secret that has to do with that. If you got, I don't know why, I, I, I think I, I go to saying four people because it's the first time it ever happened to me. I was playing with a quartet. But let's say you got four people playing together, piano, bass, drums, and a tenor saxophone. There's no question in my mind that the best possible outcome of that music will involve each one of those four individuals actually paying more attention to what the other three are doing than to what they themselves are doing. So in that sense, it's a reactive art. And for that to work, the foundation that you've laid going into that has to be so strong that you can literally let go of it, whether we're talking about just pure technique or conceptual things. When I'm playing with other people, 
I want what I'm doing to be about reacting to what they're doing. And if everybody's doing that, that's when the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. Well, Lawrence Hobgood, thank you so much for talking today. And we are looking forward to your upcoming performance. As am I. Mm. I can't wait. <laughs> Don't miss the opportunity to hear the Lawrence Hobgood Trio in concert on Sunday, May 28th at 5 p.m. at the Sound Conservatory, located at 1600 2nd Avenue in Rock Island. Tickets are $25 and can be purchased at eventbrite.com or at the door. More information can be obtained at polyrhythms.org. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. WVIK.